Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. So glad you could join me today. Now, look, I got to give a warning right at the beginning of of this uh, segment because I'm going to be throwing some spoilers out there a little bit later on in the show. I don't want to run you off right at the beginning, but if you're into Stranger Things, and as it turns out, there are a lot of people who are apparently very into Stranger Things, um, that's something I'm going to be talking about. There's a terrific article popped up uh, today on intellectualtakeout.org. Actually, I guess this was published yesterday by Dylan Pommen, cronyism versus free markets and stranger things. But I have to warn you ahead of time, it does contain some spoilers. So if you're a very serious stranger things fan, uh, well, we'll get through the rest of the show. Maybe in the last segment, I'll go ahead and share this one with you. I just thought it was fascinating and, uh, and I, and I couldn't stay away. Now I'll tell you this right up front. I don't get into television a lot. There's very few shows that I'm like, Ooh, I'm goo goo for that show. But I find myself drawn to that series for no reason other. I mean, look, the story's interesting. It's it's spooky and kind of sci-fi, and, and and that's cool. But what really pulls me in is the producers have done such a magnificent job of capturing the essence of what the 1980s felt like. So yeah, maybe it's you know me hearkening back to the glory days, but. The music, the hairstyles, the clothing, the cars, the carpet, the wallpaper, the whole nine yards. It, they, they get the period right. It feels authentic the way that it's it's portrayed. And since I happen to remember the 80s with a fair amount of fondness, it, it kind of draws me in. And, and who knew? There was kind of an interesting story to go along with it. So I'm giving you... Plenty of warning ahead of time, but also letting you know I'm, I'm going to be talking about it coming up a little bit later in the show. Let's talk about something a little more down to earth, so to speak. Have you heard about this giant asteroid made of gold or that has so much gold that it would... Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of what, what they are trying to quantify it as. Something like 10000 quadrillion dollars worth of gold at current prices. That is so many zeros that, that my mind actually kind of vapor locks a little bit just trying to, to compute that. But it's an asteroid named Psyche. And the first thing I have to say is uh, because I listen to uh, my friend Ralph DeLugas and his show Stranger Than Fiction, I'm a little bit of a skeptic. Okay, maybe I'm a lot of a skeptic. And so the first thing I'm asking is, okay, how exactly do scientists know that this asteroid really has that much gold? But then I'm like, okay, I'll set aside whatever skepticism or disbelief for the for the moment. And then I'm going to pose the question, what if they were able to go and harvest the gold from that asteroid? You know, one of the big things uh, that, that has been making headlines regarding it is why there's enough on here to make everyone on Earth a billionaire. But I don't know if that's really the case. I don't know if that's actually true. But nonetheless, there's a fascinating article. This was on the, the uh, fee.org website. Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, David Youngberg is the author. And I like that we get a little bit of background here to start out. He points out that in Greek mythology, 
Psyche, that's the name of this asteroid, but Psyche was a woman of such beauty that she inspired jealousy in the love goddess Venus. The 19th century Italian astronomer Annabelle de Gasparis named a massive asteroid after her. How appropriate it turns out that 16 Psyche, one of the biggest asteroids in the asteroid belt, appears to be made out of a metal famous for inspiring lust, that being gold. Now, unlike gold discoveries of the past, there is no rush to harvest Psyche. NASA wants to send a probe just to study it, (laughs) wink, wink, prompting several articles to erroneously breathe a sigh of relief. According to one, if we carried Psyche back to Earth, it would destroy commodity prices and cause the world's economy worth $75.5 trillion to collapse. But David Youngberg says no one tries to explain how cheap gold would cause an economic collapse. And he says there's a good reason they don't try to explain it, because it wouldn't. Psyche has a lot of gold, he says, about $10,000 quadrillion worth at current prices. Now, the eye-catching headlines that claim it's enough gold to make everyone on Earth a billionaire are, of course, complete fantasy. Selling that much gold would cut prices to nearly zero. Harkening back to uh, The Incredibles, when everybody is special, nobody is special. That's kind of how it would be in this case, too. Well, if gold was still used for money, that much gold would create massive inflation, resulting in a lot of economic hardship. No country uses the gold standard anymore, so that's hardly a concern. Rock-bottom gold prices would certainly be devastating for gold mining companies and people who keep their wealth in gold bars. That's really bad for them, but keep in mind, they're a tiny part of the global economy. Perhaps the confusion rests in simple reverse causation, Recessions definitely cause lower commodity prices, but lower commodity prices cause recessions no more than umbrellas cause rain. Harvesting psyche would not bring an economic collapse. If that much gold could be cheaply brought to market, it would be a boon, not a bust. And the author here says it's impossible to predict what a world of cheap gold would look like, but the story of aluminum gives us a hint. Even though it's the most abundant metal on the planet, most aluminum is trapped in bauxite and was difficult to purify for most of human history. Pure aluminum was incredibly rare, and there was once a time where the stuff of soda cans was actually more precious than gold. Aluminum bars were displayed next to the French crown jewels and pure aluminum caps, the the Washington Monument. I didn't realize that. Techniques like the hall hero process changed all that. What was once the Medal of Monarchs and monuments became readily available to everyone. In fact, it's so cheap that we now use it in fishing boats, airplanes, and beer kegs. Its foil version keeps food fresh. We we throw aluminum foil, foil away all the time. But making aluminum cheap didn't cause an economic collapse. In fact, quite the opposite. It actually made society wealthier because refining improvements made everything cheaper, thereby creating new opportunities. Wood that once went for beer kegs could now be used for something else. Aluminum boats don't corrode in water, and this application freed up steel and timber that would otherwise be used to replace degrading vessels. Modern airplanes wouldn't even be possible without aluminum, and their existence frees up time, fuel, and materials that would otherwise have gone to passenger ships and trains. Now, he goes on to point out how true wealth is not found in precious metals, and Bloomberg's Noah Smith rightly points out that harvesting the asteroid Psyche won't cause a new industrial revolution. But he says he goes too far when he claims that it won't make society richer because holding everything else constant, a cheaper resource is the definition 
of economic progress. It's just a question of magnitude. Harvesting psyche, if it can be harvested at the right price, then that's a big if, would make society richer because that much gold will allow us to reallocate our efforts to other endeavors. No one knows what effects cheap gold would have because the price of gold has never been anywhere near zero. And while gold has limited production applications now, who knows how people will adapt if gold is functionally free. There are substitutes and there are substitutes for substitutes. And by the way, gold does have some pretty promising industrial uses. Besides just, you know, dressing up your grill or, uh, you know, in the form of coins or gold bars, you know, sitting in a safe somewhere. For instance, the article points out gold is incredibly ductile and an excellent conductor of electricity. So maybe houses could be wired with gold instead of copper, freeing up copper that could then be used in other ways. Or maybe there's an industry that's only possible with cheap gold, like aviation is for aluminum. In other words, we can't look at how gold is used now with its sky-high price and assume it'll be the same with a rock-bottom price. Cheap gold probably won't give us an economic boom, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't be an economic boon. If a future entrepreneur were to harvest Psyche, it would certainly be devastating to the gold industry, but for everyone else, dirt-cheap gold would be a stellar improvement. See, I was kind of hoping he was going to take it in a direction of, well, maybe what we need to see is the gold standard return. And I understand with that much gold, at least at least though it would be backing our dollars. And that's one thing that we don't have right now. Now, I've only got a minute or so before we go to break here, but uh, I, I think it's it's worth delving into the mysteries, if you will, of money to recognize what we call money, those bills in, in our pocket or in our wallet, or those digits that show up on our computer, since most of our money seems to exist in electronic form these days. They're not a tangible asset that holds value. And look, I understand gold only holds value because we believe it holds value. But the rub is uh, that's something that mankind has believed for at least most of recorded history. Put it this way. If someone offered you to do a chocolate bar or a one-ounce bar of gold or a coin of gold, which one would you take? Right? You know which one is actually worth more. Even if you don't necessarily count yourself as a gold bug, you'd be like, well, heck yeah, man, I'll take the, I'll take the gold coin knowing full well that you can get an awful lot of chocolate bars. I've seen a similar experiment done with, I think it was actually a 10-ounce bar of silver. Now, yes, yeah, silver also is a precious metal, although it's lesser in the eyes of a lot of people. But people were offered basically, you know, here's a chocolate bar, here's a 10-ounce bar of silver. And a shocking number of people would take the 10-ounce, I'm sorry, would take the candy bar rather than the 10-ounce bar of silver. By the way, I don't know what the spot price is right now on silver, but uh, I, I promise you, you could buy enough candy bars to last you for a long, long time with a 10-ounce bar. I mean, you're probably talking... I don't know, probably, you know, between $100, $200 worth of silver right there. Maybe more. So something to keep an eye on. I don't know that we're going to get around to mining the asteroid psyche anytime soon. But I would love to see the possibility maybe shift conversation in the direction of what would happen if we actually went back on a gold standard, had money that was backed by something of value. Now, there's a conversation we ought to be having.
welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Hey, I just uh, I just realized uh, I've read a couple of great articles about uh, Stranger Things and how it has actually mounted a pretty interesting defense of capitalism. Now, I'm not going to share it in this segment, but uh, but I believe coming up starting after the bottom of the hour, I am going to share a couple of these articles with you, and I would love to get your reaction too. So, if you're near the phone, you feel like calling in. You want to yell at me? Stop telling spoilers about this television series. You can do so at 801-254-1640. Let's talk about something else. This is this is something that only recently has kind of come across my consciousness, but it's something that I think it's time has come. It's an article by Barry Brownstein. The sober curious are challenging the drinking culture. Here's why that's a good thing. Now, when I say this recently came into my consciousness, this is something that I saw in the form of a meme just a couple of weeks ago. And I don't even remember who made the meme or, or, or who posted it first. I just remember seeing something about how alcohol is the only drug in our society where if a person declines the offer of that drug, they're expected to explain themselves. In other words, when somebody offers you a drink... If you say, oh, no, no thanks, more often than not, you're going to get a, what? What's the problem? Why won't you drink with me? Now, to put that in perspective, think about that if, if somebody is, you know, uh, puffing away on a blunt. Yeah, they take a nice big hit and they hold it out to you. Here, do you want to hit Elon Musk? Sorry, just thinking about the Joe Rogan experience there. Um, and you were to say, uh, no thanks. Which, by the way, a lot of people would say, uh, no, that's that's just not for me. Do they feel the need to find out well, what the heck is wrong with you? Why not? But alcohol does have that kind of acceptance, and, and it's really odd. And I think most of us at some point have been in a situation where uh, we're in a social setting. People are drinking. They're having a good time. And, you know, if, if you're not standing there participating in, uh, in the libations, you almost have to have an excuse. And I've had friends tell me, you know, look, because because of my personal preference and my religious beliefs, I'm a teetotaler. I just I don't drink. Now, I'm not telling you, therefore, you shouldn't drink either. And by gosh, we need prohibition to come back. Where's Carrie Nation when we need her? I, I'm not I, I don't think in those terms. You want to conduct yourself like an adult and you want to drink by all means. Go ahead. But if I decline, I don't think I should have to explain to you that, uh, you know, no, thanks. Uh, I, I'm just not a drinker. And I've actually had some friends say, look, if you want to get people off your back, if they're, if they're kind of pressuring you, and sometimes people do, you can always say, uh, thank you, but I'm in recovery. And that will make most people back off. It would take a pretty hard person to say, you know, to talk to a recovering alcoholic. Oh, come on. One beer is not going to hurt. <laughs> they should know better than that. But do you see the double standard? That's how acceptable drinking is in many circles. And I, I've had the privilege of working in some professional circles where um, that's just that's a part of the, the socialization. And there have been a few times when I've been the only guy in the whole dang room or the whole restaurant there who wasn't hoisting a glass. And I'm OK with that. I'm not sitting there looking down my nose at others going, well, look at you. <laughs> you probably think you're having a good time. But you do get questioning looks. And it's, it's a really odd feeling. And maybe maybe it's just me, but uh, you know, when when I decline, um, I almost feel like I'm obligated to give some kind of a, an explanation, something reasonable. Well, I, I just I'm sorry, I can't. I I have liver disease, right? I just, but 
Anyway, the article by Barry Brownstein raises some very interesting questions, and I like his term, sober curious. <laughs> I like to speak to the liberty curious, and so that that's... Uh, That's a a very nice little turn of phrase. It it resonates well with me. Barry Brownstein says, accompanying the growing interest in wellness lifestyles is a growing interest in giving up alcohol. And he says, the sober curious are looking for a way to socialize without alcohol. Millennials are drinking less and entrepreneurs are eager to give consumers what they want. And this, this sober curious trend is not limited to single millennials residing on the coasts. Wine moms are giving up alcohol. According to a report by Bon Appetit, the market for low to zero alcohol beverages is expected to grow by 32% over the next three years. Annie Grace, in her book, The Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life, argues that questioning your beliefs about alcohol is the first step in reducing your reliance on alcohol. Now, the sober curious are challenging the belief that you actually need alcohol as a social lubricant. Grace quotes W. Osler, Alcohol doesn't permit one to do things better, but instead causes us to be less less ashamed of doing things poorly. And she adds, You may feel that a little alcohol is good for your conversation skills or your golf game. When you are making a fool of yourself or when your conversation skills wane, you remain unaware. Booze doesn't make you cleverer, funnier, more creative or more interesting. We don't realize how bad we look when drinking. Now, Barry Brownstein says, look, many of us are introverts. Grace observes that alcohol didn't help her overcome social inhibitions in a healthy way. She says, drinking didn't make me funnier. How could it? When my brain functioned at a slower pace, my wit was dulled. It didn't make me more interesting. It just removed my inhibitions. Now, I thought this was a good thing. I now realize we have inhibitions for a reason. They protect us not only from physical harm, but from doing or saying things we shouldn't. Perhaps you think you need a drink to reduce stress. Well, how long can you sustain the initial tipsy feeling at happy hour? Grace explains that alcohol depresses the central nervous system, exacerbating depression and anxiety. Small daily problems that shouldn't be much of an issue loom large for drinkers. And Grace challenges other social beliefs about alcohol. For instance, alcohol doesn't give you courage. She says alcohol numbs your senses and prevents you from feeling natural fear. It's not possible for alcohol to give you courage because by definition, if you've numbed feelings of fear, you cannot be courageous. Courage means doing what is right or just despite your fear. Brownstein says few fail to understand the harm of heroin or other drugs, but what about alcohol? Grace warns us not to underestimate the harm that addictive and dangerous alcohol does to ourselves and others. She writes, researchers scored 20 drugs on criteria related to overall harm, considering both the harm to the user and the harm to people who are around the user, but not actually using the drug. The majority of the criteria related to the specific harm to an individual. Overall, alcohol scored as the most harmful drug with an overall harm score of 72 Heroin came in second with a harm score of 55, and crack cocaine with a score of uh, with a third score of 54.60. Does that surprise you? Like it surprises me? I honestly don't think I would have put alcohol that high up. I would have thought, you know, well, meth has got to be right up there at the very, very top. Maybe PCP or something like that. But there it is: alcohol. Twenty drugs scored on their criteria to cause overall harm. 
and alcohol was at the top, and, and not just by you know a, mar- a short or small margin, but by a pretty wide margin. Barry Brownstein says, we've all read about the horrors of drunk driving. Grace gives us gruesome facts. Every night and weekend, one out of ten drivers on the road are intoxicated. And alcohol-related accidents are the leading cause of death among young people. Half of all fatal highway accidents are alcohol-related. In fact, she says most drunk drivers don't even realize they're drunk. She adds their inhibitions have been compromised. Their senses are no longer functioning properly. They literally no longer have the sense to avoid getting behind the wheel. She also talks about how alcohol fuels sexual assaults. Quote, when drinking, men perceive a greater level of sexual interest than women intend to communicate. And this perception of feeling led on by a woman when combined with alcohol can increase aggressive behavior. Can make a man more likely to commit assault. Drunk men are more likely than sober men to find the use of force to obtain sex acceptable. And finally, alcohol affects a woman's ability to assess and react to risk. She says we're more likely to take risks that we would normally avoid, such as being alone with a strange man. Okay, there's a bit more to this article by Barry Brownstein, but I'll come back to it just the other side of our bottom of the hour break. Tell me this. What are your thoughts? Is this just, you know, are the the teetotalers uh, rising up here to spoil your fun? Or is there some wisdom in what Barry Brownstein is pointing out here? 801-254-1640. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thanks again for joining me. And uh, we're talking about the sober curious. Now, I don't know. I don't get the judgmental vibe that some might be getting. But then again, I'm, I'm not a drinker, so I, I might be, you know, hard to I might be hard of hearing, so to speak, when it comes to perceiving such things. But Barry Brownstein talks about how there is a movement afoot and it's kind of based in the personal wellness movement about uh, Finding something other than alcohol to act as a social lubricant. And I'm not telling you this is the answer for everything. This is the way that it all should be. But it definitely um, it definitely piques my interest. And as I mentioned earlier, because I, I can't think of a single drug other than alcohol where if you refuse, you know, someone offers you alcohol. Hey, would you like a drink? And you say no. Almost always there's an explanation expected. Really? Why not? Now, this is not as common where I live in my home state of Utah, um, just because, you know, there's there's a very strong Mormon influence, and there's not a lot of Mormons who drink. Uh, rumors of Jack Mormons to, to not to the, or notwithstanding, um, it's, it's just, it's, it's not as common. Plus, the state has ironclad control of the... Dispensing of alcoholic beverages, and uh, frankly, even though I'm not a drinker, I find it a little bit offensive that uh, politicians and and bureaucrats treat adults like small children when it comes to this kind of thing. I'm not saying I want to see a liquor store on every corner. I've lived in places where there was a liquor store on almost every corner, and I'm not going to pretend like, well, that really enhanced quality of life, but 
I would much rather attend to that inconvenience of people being able to exist and and be treated like adults than to have us be treated like a bunch of children by some patronizing bureaucracy. I'm going down a path I don't really want to go right now. So let me let me dial it back in. Barry Brownstein, in writing about this, says, look, I don't drink, but I have other bad habits. And he says, willpower alone won't change a habit if part of you believes the habit is beneficial. That's because your beliefs will work against you. When beliefs change, so does your behavior. And he says, since reading Grace's book, I have become more aware of how conditioned we are to believe in the beneficial social impacts of alcohol. Movies and television often positively portray drinking. Boy, think back to if, if you grew up watching MASH. I mean, for crying out loud, that's uh, they lived to drink. They built a still of their own because that's how important alcohol was to them. And Grace observes that alcohol advertisements sell and end to loneliness, claiming that drinking provides friendship and romance. They appeal to your need for freedom by saying drinking will make you unique, brave, or bold or courageous. They promise fulfillment, satisfaction, and happiness. You don't see a lot of unhappy beer commercials, right? Grace and those in the Sober Curious movement want us to know that alcohol advertisements and movies are selling false beliefs. By helping us lift our blinders, they're doing an important public service. Seeing the truth about drinking leads to lasting change. So there's something to consider. I know there are some people who may think, hey, mind your own business. Okay, I'll go back to minding my own business. But I just find it interesting that there's there's an actual movement out there, sober, curious. And people looking for ways to go out and enjoy themselves other than depending upon some kind of intoxicating substance, be it alcohol or I presume. So I don't guess these guys are, you know, eschewing alcohol and then going out there and smoking some meth. That that wouldn't really stand to reason, right? Sounds like they're trying to find ways to, to have a good time without artificially enhancing their reality. Maybe that's something worth looking at. I'll let you be the, the one who chooses. All right, let's talk about Stranger Things. And I'm going to warn you right now, there are going to be some spoilers forthcoming, so uh, don't be angry. It's not like I didn't give you fair warning, but uh, this is one of those unique series in that it has kind of a, an interesting premise. It's set in the 1980s. They, they nail it in terms of the cars, in terms of the clothing, the hairstyles, the architecture, the entertainment. I mean, right down to the movies that the, the people are watching. Uh, Back to the Future figures kind of prominently in uh, season three. And this is all kind of cool to me because, look, not to get uh, too reminiscent here, but uh, I remember going to see Back to the Future in the movie theater when it first came out. And it's one of those rare movies that actually has held up pretty well over time. I think that was one of Steven Spielberg's biggest hits. Yes, I would even say it was bigger than E.T. when it finally came along. Um, Very well done. Fun. You know, people laughed. There was tension. There was, you know, there was a lot of nice little inside Easter eggs and jokes in there. But um, that was a, a very formative kind of movie. As I recall, and of course, it spawned at least a couple more movies and, you know, a bunch of bunch of different spinoffs in terms of, you know, cartoons and the things. Um, by the way, you and I are living in the future that Marty McFly traveled to after he went 30 years back in the past. He went 30 years ahead in the future. And we're there, folks. In fact, we're past the future date that he went to. <laughs> and I still don't have a hoverboard and my shoes still don't tie themselves. So 
You know, what can I say? But Stranger Things actually has brought to, to mind some very interesting concepts besides just capturing the 80s in a way that very few people have ever seen before. And I have uh, an article here from my friend, uh, Stephen Kent. He is uh, he writes for Young Voices and is just he's a great commentator. And it's funny. He just I, w- I was going to talk about Stranger Things anyways. I was going to bring that up on the show today. And uh, and Stephen had uh, messaged me on Twitter about uh, another entirely different topic and, and a guest we were considering talking about. And he said, just out of curiosity, do you uh, do you watch Stranger Things? And I'm like, yeah. I don't watch a lot of television, but I did binge the entire third season last Friday and Saturday since I had a day off from from my regular duties and was, um, you know, minding the home. I found the time to sit down and watch. It's only eight episodes. So, you know, spread out over about uh, eight hours or about four hours each day. I was able to knock out all of them. And it's a pretty interesting story. I won't I won't hit you with all the spoilers, but something that I have seen in this season and now a couple of different people have commented on is this season, in addition to capturing that vibe, that zeitgeist of the 1980s, right down to the Cold War, they also do a pretty decent defense of capitalism. And that's what Stephen writes about, is what Stranger Things gets right about capitalism. Now, it's interesting, because he goes back and he references another 80s movie. He says, the bad reputation capitalism has with America's young people is really no surprise when you consider the way it's talked about in popular culture treachery selfishness outright evil are often associated with a character carrying the mantle of capitalism and he brings up the specter of 1987's wall street remember that one michael douglas as the manipulative stockbroker gordon gecko or christian bale that was actually in the 90s actually i think that was 2005 uh in american psycho as a financier who moonlights as an axe murderer these are iconic roles that leave a lasting impression with audiences that can linger for decades And this week, the hit sci-fi series Stranger Things returned to Netflix for its third season and in a delightful twist, makes an affirmative case for capitalism. So to set the stage, it's 1984 in Hawkins, Indiana, and the children from Stranger Things have entered their teen years. And by the way, they do a pretty good job. As a teenager in the 1980s, I'm telling you, they, they did a really good job. Most of them are dating, awkwardly learning how to kiss, losing interest in the nerdy antics that defined them for the first two seasons of the show. Why play Dungeons and Dragons in uh, Mike's basement when there's a brand new mall to explore? The mall is brand new for Hawkins, and it serves as a junction of sorts for all kinds of new characters to fill the plazas, stores, and the food court. Now, there are some spoilers coming up here, so you are warned. Enter two of Stranger Things rising and new characters, respectively Erica Sinclair. She's the 10-year-old sister of Lucas and Mayor Larry Klein. In the first three episodes, these two characters sound off on capitalism and how it plays into their motivations. For audiences, it should say a good deal about Matt and Ross Duffer, the series showrunners, what they want you to take away about the capitalism debate. For instance, the mayor is a jerk, plain and simple. He's responsible for bringing the new mall to Hawkins, and in the minds of some townspeople, it has come at the expense of the historic downtown area. Most of downtown is shuttered. Most of the businesses are closed. And when confronted about this and the role of the mall in the downturn, he just laughs and says, this is just good old-fashioned American capitalism while lighting a cigar. Yeah, no cliche there. Change and disruption is certainly a feature of capitalism, says Stephen Kent. Indifference or glee in the misfortunes of losers in that equation, well, that's something else. 
Now, we'll come back to this in just a few moments. Again, there will be more spoilers ahead, but I'm talking about Stranger Things and how it makes a convincing case for capitalism. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Hey, if you want to weigh in, I don't know if you just want to commiserate or even uh, condemn Stranger Things, but uh, that's what I'm talking about here. There are some spoilers ahead, but would you believe that a, that a Netflix, a made-for-Netflix TV series, which, by the way, has uh, proven amazingly popular, actually has done a pretty good job of making the case for capitalism, especially in its most recent season, which was just released uh, not quite a week ago. I think it came out July 4th. A lot of people were anticipating this, myself included, just because uh, somehow I got pulled in. My wife and my kids were watching the first couple of seasons, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to get caught up in this. You know, I do my own thing. And then I stood there in the doorway of our family room, and I watched uh, part of an episode and went, holy cow. They've got the 80s down pat. And I edged my way onto the sofa, and lo and behold, next thing I know, I'd watched all of both seasons. And it was actually pretty interesting. You know, it's it's a little bit of a strange story, but like I say, it's it's the vibe of the 1980s that really pulled me in. So I was interested to see, well, what are they going to do for the third season? And surprisingly, one of the things that they do is they show capitalism in a more positive light than we might be used to seeing. I mean, I just, I gave you the example as we went, we went to break about uh, the mayor of their town. The Hawkins mayor is a jerk. He brought the mall to Hawkins. He laughs about uh, the stores that are getting shut down. You know, the hometown, downtown stores that are now shuttered because the mall has driven them out of business. And he just laughs and says, ha ha, that's just good old fashioned American capitalism while he lights a cigar. Now, most Hollywood products would just leave it here where the objectively unlikable character gets the last word on capitalism and politics. For instance, in Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Indy's longtime friend George Mac McHale sells him out to the Russians for a quick buck. All he offers in account to account for betraying his friend is, sorry, Jones, I'm a capitalist and they pay. And Stephen Kent says, no, actually, he's just a bad person who needed to justify his awfulness. But back to Stranger Things. We're then treated to a series of memorable moments from the young Erica. Remember, she's the 10-year-old child, sharp-witted, spends her day at the store trolling mall stores for, or spends her, her days at the mall trolling stores for free samples of sweets and harassing Steve Harrington, who's working now at the mall's ice cream parlor. Well, when Dustin, Steve, and his fellow ice cream slinger, Robin, need to get inside a secret Russian base beneath the mall, sorry, that's a big spoiler, they can't fit into the air ducts in order to sneak in. So they turn to Erica in their moment of need because she's small enough, and they lay before her this banquet of free ice cream to complete the dangerous task. But Erica knows better. You know what I love about America, she says? Capitalism. You know what capitalism is? 
It means this is a free market system, which means people get paid for their services, depending on how valuable their contributions are. And it seems to me that my ability to fit into that little vent is very, very valuable to you. And she ends up extracting from them free ice cream for life. Now, it's a laugh at la- out loud moment coming from a 10 year old. But she's right in a way that rarely, if ever, happens on screen. And Stephen Kent says it's quite obvious which of these characters the Duffer Brothers brothers wants you to like more. Erica, without which you can't have America, knows her worth and won't let anyone get away with undervaluing her skills. And she couches that in an anti-communist worldview and appreciation of capitalism. The mayor, on the other hand, is quite literally colluding with Russia to sell them real estate in Hawkins in return for secret research facilities where they can do their thing. But he's rude, opportunistic, weak, and also a self-described capitalist. The point here being that capitalism, as it turns out, is just like any idea. It is as uplifting as it is corruptible. That fair representation in Stranger Things where audiences can see a vulture such as Mayor Klein, as well as a likable junior entrepreneur such as Erica, draw on the same idea to different ends is as honest as it gets when it comes to capitalism. And Stephen Kent says, for, the, for that, the shows should be commended. Now, Dylan Pauman also had a similar take on this. Um, this was published on intellectualtakeout.org. And I like one of the things he points out here. As Erica is negotiating her free ice cream for life for being willing to go into the air ducts to help get these other kids into the secret Russian facility that they're trying to break into. She's teaching them an elementary lesson about economics. As the economist Paul Hain put it, if I think you'll smile at me, I'll talk a little bit longer. Free exchanges are positive sum endeavors. They work because both parties in their own estimation benefit. That's how wealth is increased through production and exchange. But wait, he says, not all exchanges are free. The United States has enjoyed the benefits of free markets since its founding, but it's also had to deal with the scourge of cronyism, which, by the way, is the type of capitalism represented by the mayor at the same time. Not everyone, like Erica, gets to grill the other party about all the risks involved or have the option of just walking away from the deal if they don't get an offer that's worth it to them. And as it turns out, this episode covers that, too. Adam Smith warned of how business interests can collude with governments to close markets and to increase their own advantage to the disadvantage of everyone else. So in a parallel plot line, we see this cronyistic capitalism as opposed to the free market system on display as well. This is where Starcourt, the company that owns the mall, whose creative destruction has been shaking up the local economy, actually has some genuinely sinister schemes, the full nature of which are fully disclosed by Episode 4. What we do learn is that in order to expand its property holdings, Starcourt, the owner of the mall, has been lobbying and perhaps even threatening the local mayor, Larry Klein. Joyce Byers who is one of the key characters in this, and police chief Jim Hopper, confront Klein about a suspicious motorcyclist Hopper saw at the mayor's office the previous day, and Hopper ends up coercing a confession from Klein through questionable methods after the latter threatens to blackmail him. The mayor's confession is, look, I don't know his name, I swear, he gives me things sometimes. Money, presents, gifts, Starcourt, 
He works for Starcourt. I swear. I swear. Starcourt. They own the mall. They want to expand to East Hawkins. They needed property, some land. People didn't want to sell, so I leaned on them a little. Now, that raises some other interesting questions, and this is actually something I'm going to be doing on a future show. In fact, this is one of the reasons I was talking with my friend Stephen Kent from Young Voices uh, to talk to uh, one of uh, the talents that they have uh, about uh, about what happened. What happened with malls? When's the last time you went to the mall, for that matter? Honestly, I can't remember the last time that I went to a mall for any reason. I mean, it's it's been a few years. Maybe it was for some Christmas shopping, but do you remember when malls really were the thing? I mean, look, growing up as a kid, hey, we're going to go to the Cottonwood Mall. Then the Fashion Place Mall came along, and oh, we'll go look at the Christmas decorations at the Valley Fair Mall, and Cottonwood Mall, gone. I don't know about the Fashion Place Mall. There's other There's other malls that have cropped up, but... Today we see these mega malls in disrepair. We get a little bit nostalgic about this bygone era, but at the same time, you know what this season said in the mid-80s? The malls, sometimes rightly and sometimes not, were viewed by some people as the bad guys because they would push local stores out of business. In Stranger Things, it turns out the mall isn't just offering a better deal to consumers, but it's also unjustly striking deals with City Hall to ensure their market position through special favors rather than free competition. Ooh, tell me that doesn't ring a bell with anybody. Furthermore, what is thought to be by some an iconic picture of capitalism in the 1980s is revealed, as far as viewers know, to be a front for nefarious Soviets. Who can save Hawkins from these cronyistic fakers and their evil plans? Who can stand for freedom, justice, in the American way? Well, in this case, uh, the author, um, Dylan Palman, says, I don't know the answer to those questions yet. I'm still watching. But he says, I know one thing. You can't spell America without Erica. So based on that, I would recommend if if you have any interest in the show, first of all, I hope I haven't spoiled it for you, but it's it's really worth checking out. And, and this is aside from the plot arc and this is aside from the character development and everything else that goes into it. They actually do a pretty respectable job of extolling the virtues and some of the vices associated with capitalism. I think this is one of the hardest things for people to accept. And this is true not just of you know free markets, but it's true of, of freedom in general, any kind of personal freedom. It's, it's like a nude beach in the sense that, hey, that sounds like a good idea. But then you, you go to the nude beach and you realize, ugh. It isn't always pretty. And so it is with freedom. And where that leaves us is, okay, so so how do you draw the line on what is a rightful amount of freedom versus where do we need to restrict this or otherwise interfere or intervene with the state? The only objective way that I know to do it is you've got to make sure that that where people are behaving peacefully, where they are able to do things voluntarily, they should be left alone. Left to make their own choices, even if they're not beautiful, even if they're not uplifting, even if they are something you wouldn't agree with. As long as they're not harming or otherwise infringing on your rights, let them make those choices and you make your own choices. With the knowledge that you can make those good, beautiful, uplifting, ennobling choices, maybe by the power of example, people will learn something. Just a thought.